We are beginning a new series tonight at the Academy. It's entitled Amillennialism 101. And in our first lecture, we are going to ask the question, what is amillennialism? But I'd like to uh, walk you through the two textbooks for the course that I have with me. And there's also a third. Uh, the primary text we're using is A Case for Amillennialism. This is a book that uh, came out in 2003. And um, this comes from a series of lectures that I did way back at the Academy in the early 90s. And that series of lectures was entitled For He Must Reign. They went through a number of different revisions. I gave it several different times. That eventually became a case for millennialism. And um, the book is basically written for someone who made a similar journey to the journey I made. I was raised in dispensationalism, as were many of you. Had a very difficult and uh, kicking and scratching and clawing conversion to amillennialism. And so I tried to write the book for people going through those same kinds of, of issues and questions. Uh, the book isn't really uh, attempting to kind of solve some of the in-house reform debates, say, between post-millennialism and, and amillennialism, or even with some of the current issues with preterism. It's really a basic a statement of amillennialism primarily written for someone who's premillennial and is starting to, to, you know, I'm asking questions now. I'm very much interested in Reformed theology. I'm looking at churches. And the last thing I'm kind of trying to decide on is eschatology. The book is written for that person. So if that's where you're coming from, I think you'll find the book helpful. A more comprehensive text on amillennialism is Anthony Hookham's book, The Bible in the Future. And I, I think that's a book that uh, if you're really serious about this topic, you ought to have read. The other book I'm going to recommend is my book, The Man of Sin. This is my spiritual biography. And um, this is a book about the Antichrist. And uh, it deals a little more with methodological questions. It deals a little more with the question of preterism. And I think a, a, a topic like the Antichrist gives you a pretty good idea how historic Protestant theology differs from so much contemporary evangelical theology because it's non-speculative. We're not trying to, to identify the Antichrist as much as work through the passages that deal with the Antichrist so we can uh, basically avoid speculation while at the same time getting a pretty good understanding of what to look for. So I think you'll find a book on a topic like that helpful to see uh, classical Protestant eschatology uh, work itself out in a different way than our contemporaries would do. So those are the texts. I'm also going to recommend, if you haven't read it yet, you really do need to read Michael Horton's book, God of Promise. Uh, Mike's book is an introduction to covenant theology. Obviously, that's not the same thing as eschatology, but the hermeneutic that uh, I use from which, and from which I've derived much of my eschatology, Mike does a good job of laying that out on God of Promise. And as this series unfolds, you're going to see a very direct relationship between classical covenant theology, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and amillennial eschatology. I mean, there, there's, it, there's a, a, they're joined at the hip. The hermeneutic is the same. And we'll talk about hermeneutics. We'll talk about our basic operating assumptions. And God of Promise does a very good job of laying those out. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And I think it's important to begin with just a basic reminder of how central the second coming of Christ is to the authors of the New Testament and to the doctrine of the New Testament. Now, remember the final promise in the book of Revelation, the next to the last verse, Revelation 22:21, 21, uh, contains the promise and a prayer. Uh, 
Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Our canon closes with a reminder and a prayer that the Lord is coming soon and that the believer is to hope and pray for His coming. So I think that's a significant factor and I think we need to keep that in mind as we proceed. Second of all, Paul speaks of the second coming of Christ as the blessed hope, that for which we as Christians long, the blessed hope. And he closes out his letter to the Corinthians, that first letter, with a prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Uh, apparently this was widely used in the apostolic church. It's been co-opted by a local uh, independent fundamentalist Bible church, uh, charismatic Bible church here locally. But it's a great word, Maranatha, and it's something that ought to be part of our vocabulary as Christians because it is, in fact, a biblical uh, term, and it is one of the prayers of the early church. It is uh, in one of Paul's benediction. Uh, it should be our prayer, our Lord come. We should be longing for the return of Christ. And then in Acts 1.11, Jesus promises His disciples that they will see Him return in the same way He had departed. This is in, during His ascension in Acts 1.11. While in Matthew 24, Jesus tells His disciples that they will see His coming with great glory when the final trumpet sounds, when the angels gather the elect together from the four corners of the earth. So that indicates that the doctrine of Christ's second advent is at the heart of New Testament teaching regarding Christ's person and His work. Now, it has been confessed by Christians from the very beginning that He ascended into heaven, He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty from where He will come to judge the living and the dead. The Apostles' Creed, uh, by the way, who knows which apostle wrote the Apostles' Creed? That's a trick question. Um, the Apostles' Creed, going very far back into the early church, um, basically lays out the second coming as something that Christians have confessed from the beginning. It's tied to Christ's session, His rule. He ascends into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. And from there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. So the early church believed in Christ's return and that His return would, in fact, mark the end of the age. Now, with the exception of full preterists, and preterists are those who believe that Christ returned in judgment on Israel in AD 70, and therefore the resurrection and the, the return of Christ have already occurred, um, and, and full preterism has been considered by everyone a heresy, and there are a few out today who are very vocal, far more vocal than they are influential. But with the exception of a few full preterists, this is a doctrine upon which Christians throughout the ages have largely agreed that Jesus is coming back. He can come back at any time. And He'll come back to judge the world, the final judgment, to raise the dead, the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unbelieving, and He will make all things new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Christians have, have by and large, with the exception of full preterists, have agreed on this. But as they say, the devil has always been in the details. The blessed hope for which we all long, sadly, has long been a source of division among God's people because although we all confess, almost all the different eschatological views, almost all the different Christian traditions confess that Christ is coming again, uh, the difference has been the details of how that will work out. And there, that has always provided then a rather sad and tragic source of division uh, in the church. Now, 
We have some thorny matters to tackle at the beginning because this subject deals with the future. And that attracts people with undue curiosity. Whenever you talk about the future, there's always folks who see in that a kind of esoterica. Uh, this is a Christian equivalent of tarot cards and fortune telling for some, which is not a good thing. And Jesus himself speaks of signs of the end. And so that means we're to look for these things, and therefore there are going to be those who insist upon reading the Bible through the lens of current events. Now, what we're going to do over the course of this series is talk about a different approach to biblical prophecy than many folks are used to. Most Bible prophecy seminars that I went to growing up in independent Bible church fundamentalism was basically a news commentary on some current geopolitical crisis. And then there were verses discussed that somehow made the case that that current geopolitical crisis was foretold in the Bible and this means that Christ is coming back any minute and these things always ended with some kind of evangelistic appeal that now is the time to uh, come forward and accept Christ as your Savior because the end was going to come at any moment. Now, for a non-Christian, the second coming of Christ ought to be the most frightening subject imaginable because for a non-Christian to put it in, in Lutheran terms, and it's pure law. The second coming of Christ is the day of judgment. There is no good news in the second coming of Christ for a non-Christian. But for a Christian, the second coming of Christ is pure gospel. It's not something of which we should fear. It's not something we should dread. It is that day when Jesus Christ returns to judge the world, raise the dead, and make all things new. This is the day when the bad guy gets it. When the wicked guy who's flourished while the righteous guy suffers, this is the day all of that stuff's going to be fixed. This is the day that all of those who have longed to be reunited with loved ones in Christ, who have suffered persecution at the hands of non-believers, who have lived lives of, of deprivation and hardship, this is the day in which we will receive our reward and enter our inheritance, that which the Lord has promised to us. It is also a great day because for those of us who might be alive when the Lord returns, this is the moment we finally stop sinning. You know, there's a sense in which it's like we're like sitting in a taxi cab and the meter's continuing to run. You know, every breath we take, we're building up our debt, our sinful debt that we owe God. We continually sin. We're, we're running up the tab. And should we live long enough for the Lord to return, it's at that moment that we finally cease sinning. And so for a Christian, this is, this is the blessed hope. This is the day for which we long. But when you look at the, the Bible through current events, the focus gets off the good news and the theological import of Christ's return and now moves into speculation. So it's very common to turn on Christian TV or radio and see someone like Hal Lindsey, who now spends more time talking about contemporary political developments and peace treaties in the Middle East than he does talking about dispensationalism. Because his grid is to try and find where those current events are discussed in Scripture. And he's just assumed that dispensationalism is correct. So now he spends all his time showing how Israel doing this, that, or the other is fulfilling this prophecy and that prophecy. And the focus now shifts to news commentary as opposed to exegesis. It's a, it's a very strange thing to, to watch. 
Now, contemporary dispensationalists just are fascinating at their ability to tie anything that comes down the pike on the evening news to some biblical passage. Anything that happens in the Middle East is immediately brought out as some indication that the end of the world is at hand, that the rapture is going to come, the great tribulation is about to begin, the Antichrist is about to be revealed. Um, I tend to be a bit of a cynic. As many of you know, I was raised in Christian publishing. Um, I'll never forget uh, the the, uh, evolution of one of the better dispensational books uh, from John Walbert. And I can't remember the original title, but it was published back in the 70s. I think it was Arabs Oil in the Middle East, if I'm not mistaken. I think that was the original title. Along about the time of Desert Storm, the first Iraq invasion, that book was taken back by Zondervan. A new cover was put on it, updating the old hokey artwork that it used to have with all the latest military weapons M1A1s, F-15s, you know, all that on the front end, picture of Saddam Hussein. Same book, but now tied to new events. Lo and behold, I was in Borders not long ago, and it's out again. And this time, who's the foil? Iran. So I I just, there's just an ingenuity here that is amazing. And, And why I point that out is it means that Reformed Christians talking about eschatology are never going to be as exciting or as captivating as dispensationalists. You're not going to come through the series and understand what Iran is doing. Uh, You're not going to come through the series and see how the alliance between Shia Muslims uh, in Iran and in Iraq is somehow setting the stage for the uh, peace treaty. We're just not going to talk about that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about passages. We're going to exegete verses. We're going to talk about a comprehensive biblical understanding of the end times. So dispensationalists have us trumped every time. Um, And I'm just amazed at how how spellbinding they can be when they take any event. And one of my old buddies used to say, you know, they, they can't lose because peace, peace, then comes sudden destruction. So if there's peace, that's a sign of the end. And if there's some holocaust, that's a sign of the end. So, cynic that I am, let me just throw this out to you. If they got it right the first time, why does the book have to keep coming out with a new title and a new cover, you know, ad seriatim? Why does that... I think if you got it right the first time, you wouldn't have to tweak it later. But Now, as you know, countless ministries and parachurch organizations exist to help Christians navigate their way through the signs of the end. If you turn on Christian radio, look at Christian television, walk into a Christian bookstore, you'll find gazillions of things that will help you do this. Um, it is phenomenal when you think of this. Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, which I read the first time when I was 14 years old, could not put that book down. Just a, a phenomenal turning point in my life. Um, that book, which came out in 1969, was the best-selling book in the United States during the decade of the 70s. Between 69 and 79, that book sold more books in the United States than any other single book. I think it's gone through 140 printings the last time I checked. It's just phenomenal how many millions of copies that sold. Then look at the LaHaye books, the Left Behind series. They're novels, they're videos, 
There are devotional things. Uh, there's all kinds of spin-offs from this. These things have sold millions and millions of units. This is a huge success story. And as long as that stuff is out there, as long as that stuff is captivating the Christian imagination, it makes it very hard for us as historic Protestants to go back to the hard work of exegeting biblical passages when what we're going to do isn't nearly as exciting as talking about the pilot disappearing off your next flight to New York because he's been raptured. Now, that raises an interesting question. How many of you have seen the first Left Behind movie? Uh, when the rapture occurs, people's clothes are left behind. Your grandmother was right. You better be wearing your clean underwear because the rapture might come and your clothing... Is... Now, of course, I, I happened to hear Christians debating not long ago, the consequences of this, and there was, a, there was a discussion, well, what happens if I have, you know, I've got an artificial knee, does it go? So just think about that for a minute. It gets kind of dicey. Now, the differences that we're raising with contemporary dispensationalism, and, and mind you, not all dispensations are the same, and there's a kind of a popular dispensationalism of evangelical culture, and a scholarly dispensationalism of academic institutions, and they're not the same thing, and we should, we should say that in fairness. So my differences with dispensationalism don't rise to the level of salvation. I don't think we want to even remotely imply that somewhere the dispensationalists are not Christians. I certainly was a Christian when I was a dispensationalist. Um, I learned my love for the Scriptures from my dispensational pastor. I, I learned the, the whole notion of progressive revelation his defense of the deity of Christ and the virgin birth in response to Protestant liberals. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff there. I don't want to accuse them of heresy either. But I do want to say that dispensationalism is a serious error because it colors basically how we read the Bible as a whole. And it really will dramatically impact how you understand huge blocks of Scripture. And at the end of the day, the test of whether or not one of these views is, is correct is does it explain the most number of passages with the fewest amount of, of odd passages sticking out over the ends of the interpretive grid? Does it make sense of everything? And I think dispensationalism uh, makes sense of everything except it's hermeneuticus flawed. It's one of those classic cases of your starting point is wrong. You, you do a pretty good job, which is why dispensationalism has succeeded, but your starting point is incorrect. Um, there's the famous story of the uh, researcher who was looking at some amoeba and had spent months drawing it and then realized what he was drawing was a reflection of his own eyelash eye, uh, in the, the lens. You know, if you're looking at the wrong thing in the wrong way, you can really do a very good job of describing something but be fundamentally wrong. And, and that's what we're going to argue with our dispensational friends. If their starting point and presuppositions are correct, then their system's going to make a lot of sense. And it does. But the starting point is incorrect, and the system operates on a number of very faulty presuppositions. And therefore, we don't want to say dispensationalism is heresy, but we want to say it is a hermeneutic. It colors how we read the Scriptures, and I think we're going to see in many ways it defaults as a proper hermeneutic. Now, to argue that presuppositions play no role in our interpretation of biblical prophecy is absolutely foolish. Um, I think Christians are very naive when they assume that their view of eschatology just jumps out of the Bible 
without any pre-understanding. All millennial Christians have very distinct presuppositions. Our presuppositions are primarily those of covenant theology. And we would argue that if you get inside Scripture and look out, the internal architecture of Scripture itself is covenant. Covenants of promise, covenants of works, royal grants, Susan D. Treaties, covenants of promise made to Abraham, covenants of obligation made to Israel, Mount Sinai. We're going to look around and say that's kind of the internal architecture of Scripture. Our hermeneutic is going to be based on, on covenant. We're also going to say that in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of, of a lot of the passages in the Old Testament and reinterprets them. So we're going to have a, a Christ-centered hermeneutic where we're going to basically argue the New Testament tells us what the Old Testament meant. We're Christians, we're not Jews. And so we look at the Old Testament through Christian glasses. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, have a different set of presuppositions. That God has two purposes, one gospel, but two purposes. A plan for Gentiles and a plan for national Israel. And the Bible is to be interpreted literally. Now, it's not an accident that John Walbert's commentary in the book of Daniel, an old dispensational staple, it's been replaced now, but uh, published by Moody Press for years and years. Daniel, subtitle, The Key to Prophetic Revelation. <coughs> Under the guise of a so-called literal in interpretation, dispensations have an Israel-centered hermeneutic. And their description of Israel and definition of Israel in the Old Testament colors what the New Testament can say on dispensational terms. So presuppositions here are vital. We have to identify them. Uh, presuppositions are, are wonderful. We all have them. But they're dangerous when people don't think they have any or won't acknowledge what they are. So it's vital to identify our presuppositions and continually subject them to testing. Now, the kind of testing we're going to talk about would be, do our hermeneutic, uh, does our hermeneutic explain biblical passages or does it run roughshod on them? And more importantly, how do we fare when we interact with other views? When our presuppositions are tested, when dispensationalists challenge the presuppositions of covenant theology, do their arguments have teeth? Do they bite? Do dispensational presuppositions withstand the criticism of covenant theology or millennialism? So we've got to be upfront about that, and we're going to, to do that throughout this series. We're going to continue to, to formulate these notions and test them in light of Scripture, in light of interaction with the other position, and um, I think the millennial position will withstand the test. So what we'll do throughout this series, then, is to operate... First, with very, very basic matters, we want to look at big picture kinds of things, talk about definitions, speak here, you know, box top, not puzzle pieces. And as we go farther along, we'll get more and more specific as we go. So keep that in mind as you ask questions in this series. I'd ask you to keep your questions germane to the topic tonight because we'll get to what you might be thinking later on. And we're uh, basically assuming here that people have not gone through Reformation, eschatology, amillennialism before, and that uh, we're going to work from big picture stuff and definitions and get more specific over the course of weeks. So let's get rolling. <clears throat> the amillennial position literally means no millennium, which is misleading as we'll see. It is the dominant eschatological viewpoint of 
much of historic Christianity, including the Roman Catholic Church, and certainly both the Lutheran and Reformed traditions. Now, our Lutheran friends have a minority historic premillennial report in their tradition. The Reformed have a minority postmillennial report in our tradition. But by and large, both those traditions are amillennial. Now, the amillennial position is also the position of the vast majority of contemporary Reformed and Lutheran theologians. Although, as I mentioned, in our tradition, you can't find a number of uh, people who are post-millennial. We're going to see that in terms of comparison, amillennialism and post-millennialism really do structurally look pretty much the same. It's kind of a nuanced difference between the two. And they both stand over against premillennialism for reasons we'll talk about momentarily. Now, I think it's very important to be clear what we're talking about as we proceed. Um, the position I'm going to be arguing and defending is reformed amillennialism. And I'll explain momentarily why I think that's so important. We might call it present millennialism. Some have called it realized millennialism. Um, I wish we could chuck the term amillennial altogether, but I don't think we're at liberty to, um, uh, to chuck the established terms in our tradition. I'm not a fan of neologisms. I don't like inventing words as we go along. So we use the classical term and just realize when we speak of amillennialism, we're not saying there's no millennium at all. We're talking about a millennial age that's real, it's present, though it refers to the heavenly reign of Christ. It does not refer to the earthly reign of Christ after he returns. And as you'll see, that understanding of amillennialism is very closely related and very closely tied to historic covenant theology, federal theology, covenant of works, covenant of grace, and the two uh, fit very nicely together. Um, and amillennialism really tends to be the eschatology of, of a solid covenant theology. Now, although it's found in some of the church fathers, and I'm thinking here of Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp and Melito of Sardis, Hippolytus, um, they believed in their writings and stated that the first resurrection came at the time of conversion or death. Now, that's important. The first resurrection coming at the moment of death or at the time of conversion. Um, amillennialism was really given its first systematic articulation by St. Augustine in his book, The City of God. So, it has been one of the standard premillennial uh, apologetics against the amillennial position to say that the church fathers were premillennial. Yes, there are some of the church fathers, most notably Irenaeus, who are premillennial, but there's also a significant number of church fathers who argue that the first resurrection comes at the time of conversion. And I would refer you to the very excellent book by a former classmate of mine, Charles Hill, Regnum Calorum, where Dr. Hill goes through a number of the church fathers and shows that there, there are two basic uh, views on this. One is the first resurrection occurs when Christ comes back. The other is the first resurrection occurs at the time of conversion or death. That's very similar to the way the church works today, where we have Christians being amillennial and Christians being premillennial and coexisting uh, together in the church. Now, Reformed amillennialism was given a very <clears throat> distinct emphasis in the writings of Gerhardus Voss in the biblical theology movement. You'll find some of the, the champions of this, people like the late Anthony Hookema. You'll find this in the writings of Cornell Venema, uh, certainly Meredith Klein. Um, there are a number of folks articulating this. Part of this biblical theology movement, for those of you who, who aren't sure what's biblical theology, isn't all theology biblical? 
Biblical theology refers to taking a doctrine and tracing it from Genesis to Revelation as it unfolds historically in Scripture. Whereas systematic theology is the collecting of all the, the verses that speak to a particular doctrine and arranging them in kind of a systematic model for the sake of clarity uh, and or coherence. It's been said that biblical theology is a line, systematic theology is a circle. That's probably a, a helpful way to view this. So the Reformed biblical theology movement has tended to kind of advance this Augustinian viewpoint, but tweaking it certainly in the direction of Reformed Orthodoxy and Covenant Theology. And that's a position that uh, I identify with, a position that we will be talking about as the course unfolds. Now, as you know, as dispensationalism became the dominant view of conservative American evangelicals, if you haven't read the book by George Marsden, Fundamentalism in American Culture, and you're interested in this topic, you just have to read that book. Marsden's book uh, explains why it was that post-millennial Americans became pessimistic dispensationalists. It's fascinating. The founders of Moody Bible Institute were post-millennial and how that institution then became dispensational premillennial. So you've got to read Marsden's book. So as dispensationalism becomes then kind of the, the dominant view of conservative evangelicals, you start to hear arguments that I've heard all my life, that amillennialism is somehow equated with Protestant liberalism. And we know what liberals do. They deny the virgin birth, they deny the miraculous, they deny the deity of Christ, and they're amillennial. Well, most Protestant liberals I know were post-millennial, secular post-millennial, that mankind was going to ushering kind of a golden age on the earth uh, that's a different position than, than orthodox post-millennialism. It's kind of a secular millennial kingdom. Um, so I don't see liberals tending to be amillennial. It's also been argued that amillennialism is Roman Catholic. And I was shocked just recently when, as you know, John MacArthur and I had a bit of a dust-up over MacArthur's lecture at the, the Shepherds Conference. And since that time, I'm told that MacArthur's recommending a book by Barry Horner called Future Israel. And I find this statement in response to something that I had said, the point I'm making now, where basically since amillennialism has been kind of the majority report in the Christian church, dispensationalists assume the burden of proof here. It doesn't mean that they're wrong, and we're not playing the tradition card. We're not saying our position's right because the church has always held it. The church hasn't always held it, but it's been the majority report in the church. I hear this in response. Such claims call for a response that clearly exposes the shameful legacy of historic amillennialism, which is really the eschatology of Roman Catholicism. Now, it's one thing to just ignore the force of the argument altogether, but it's another to just default to the cheapest of shots and say, well, it's just Roman Catholicism. Um, With all due respect to Barry Horner, I am a member of a church that basically, by and through its confessions, calls Rome a false church. I think the Roman Catholic Church ceased to be a true church of the Council of Trent. Um, I'm on record pretty loudly uh, decrying the errors of Rome on the doctrine of justification, the blasphemy of the Mass, and a number of other things. I also think it's just grossly ignorant because the Roman Church identifies the kingdom of God as the institutional church on the earth. 
I think that institutional church on the earth, the Vatican, the College of Cardinals, and all the Roman institutions, I happen to think that's a false church and at one time was the seat of Antichrist. So while I tend to be amillennial, I tend not to be Roman. And this is the kind of response we get back from people who should know better. Uh, we've got to do this on the basis of the texts. And it's wrong when all millennial people do it to dispensationalists, and it's wrong when dispensationalists do it to all millennial people. Um, the name calling has to stop. It just doesn't get us any place. Let's evaluate the text. Let's deal with the presuppositions we have. Let's see on uh, whose side the texts really fall. Now, the supposed emphasis on our part of interpreting prophecy spiritually or non literally has led to the rejection of all millennialism on the part of many. Now, Hal Lindsey, for example, in a book written in 1980, um, he's got so many I forget the exact title, Countdown to Something or Rather. Um, Lindsey in that book basically says that amillennialism is anti-Semitic, therefore amillennialism is demonic and heretical. And that because Luther was amillennial, that opened the doors in Germany for the Holocaust, and amillennialism is responsible for the rampant anti-Semitism in the Western world. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why Germany ended up being anti-Semitic. I think there are a lot of reasons why the Holocaust landed there. Um, Nietzsche and Hitler might have had something to do with that. I think they were a little more involved than perhaps amillennialism was. But the point is, Modern dispensationalists hear that you are amillennial and their default setting is you are anti-Semitic. And if you turn on some of the popular guys, say John Hagee and others, Hagee's calling down fire on us because we reject Israel, that we hold a replacement theology, whatever that is, because I don't know any Reformed Christian that actually holds the replacement theology. So I kind of wonder what, what's that all about when I don't know anybody that actually teaches that. Dave Hunt has done this for years. You just, you know, you have your, your ears open and you hear this on a constant basis. Um, one of the things I like to point out to folks like that is when I first came into the Christian Reformed Church, of which I'm no longer a member because we're now in the URC, but when I first came into the Christian Reformed Church in Southern California, there are a number of churches here where if you get to know the families, you realize pretty quickly that our legacy is anything but anti-Semitic. There was a, there's a local church where my wife and I were members for several years where one of the elders uh, came from a home in Holland in World War II that hid Jews in their attic at great risk to their own lives. Um, the family happened to be such that the uh, man's wife died. Several of their children died because of the great deprivation. And in the household, the... Uh, the, the fellow's father, this, this elder's father, had died from pneumonia because of all... Well, to make a long story short, this Jewish man converted to Christianity and ended up marrying his mother. I, there's another family that you will all know the name. Um, they had a, a, a farm in Holland on a dike, and outside on the, on the lip of the dike was the German anti-aircraft position, uh, searchlights and guns, and there was a, a whole crew out there and um, this fellow's grandfather would bring them food. Half of those Germans were Lutherans. Uh, he would bring them food, kind of take care, because they were, you know, as the war got 
increasingly difficult for the German war effort. Supplies got rather thin. Here's this family of farmers eating pretty well, and these poor soldiers out here not eating very well, so they would share food with them and so on. When an Allied flyer got shot down and landed on this guy's farm, and he hit him, along with the four or five Jews he was hiding, the soldiers manning that gun saw it and discovered that he not only had an Allied a down pilot, but he also had four or five Jews hidden on his property. And so when the SS came, when they heard rumors, those soldiers to a man said, oh, so-and-so's all right, don't worry about him. And they covered for him and sent the SS off in a different direction. So I get a little bristly when I hear someone who, a, a John Hagee or someone else, call me demonic and anti-Semite anti when my own tradition has a great legacy. Corey Ten Boom, Dutch lady, Hansi, Dutch lady. Our tradition had a pretty good record of taking care of Jews during World War II. So uh, it's, it's one of those things that, that doesn't advance the ball at all and, and needs to stop. We need to do this on an exegetical basis, and it's very tacky when done to us, and it's tacky when we do it to the other side. So uh, we need to go back to the passages and hammer this stuff out and do the hard work of exegesis. Take out your Bibles and turn to the key passage, um, which is Revelation chapter 20. And there are a uh, number of things in the passage we need to look at. So I'll read the, the text. First ten verses. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones in which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years." When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sands on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So, there are six things in this passage that this is the fundamental millennial text. There are six things in this passage we need to consider. The first is the binding of Satan in verse 2. What does that mean? Well, we'll talk about it throughout this series. The second thing is the testimony of the witnesses. These are the souls who had been beheaded and had not worshipped the beast. Now, as we enumerate these things, I just throw this out to you for your consideration. Are these things descriptive of 
a period of time after Christ comes back or descriptive of the present period of redemptive history. The binding of Satan, the testimony of the witnesses, the souls who had been beheaded and had not worshipped the beast. It is preceded by the first resurrection in verse 5, over which those who participate in the first resurrection, the second death, has no power. Verse 6. Those who participate in the second resurrection do not live until after the millennium. Verse 5. And then Satan will be loosed for a brief period at the end of this time. Verses 7 to 10. And then there's the rebellion of Gog and Magog, which occurs at the end of this period. They're mentioned by name in verse 8. Now, the three prominent viewpoints regarding the millennial age are, most of you know these, postmillennialism, which argues that the millennial age precedes the return of Christ. The millennial age appears on earth before Christ comes back. Premillennialism, which holds that the millennium follows the return of Christ. Christ returns and establishes a thousand-year rule on the earth. And then there's amillennialism, which holds that the millennial age is the entire period of time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So those are the basic viewpoints. Those are the positions that we have to weigh and consider. Now, premillenarians believe, as I mentioned, that what is depicted in this passage, Revelation 20, is a description of Christ's rule upon the earth after his return. And we'll talk a little more about the details of that here shortly. But both amillenarians and postmillenarians believe that this period of time describes the present age. So, amillennial Christians and postmillennial Christians both believe the millennial age is prior to Christ's return. And so they stand over against premillenarians who believe that Christ returns and establishes the millennial age. Now here, of course, I'm speaking of premillennialism uh, in its generic form. There are historic premillenarians and there are dispensational premillenarians. Right now we're just talking about the general uh, things held in common by all those who label themselves as premillennial. Now the differences between amillenarians and postmillenarians basically uh, arise over the, the nature and character of the millennial age. All millenarians believe that this passage, Revelation 20, 1 to 10, depicts the entire period of the church militant on the earth. This is the church struggling uh, here. This is not a picture of uh, Christ's kingdom on earth after he returns. This is a description of the present age viewed first from heaven and then from the perspective of the earth. While postmillenarians believe this period of time breaks in in the present so that the earth is effectively Christianized and the golden age begins, uh, older postmillenarians, uh, following largely in the wake of Daniel Whitby, an Anglican scholar who influenced Jonathan Edwards and others, will argue that this is a literal 1,000 years on the earth. Others, more contemporary postmillenarians, will say that it's a figurative period of time and it begins only gradually. So there are two kinds of orthodox postmillenarians: Those who take this as a literal thousand years and those who argue that the millennial age begins gradually in the period of time is figurative. What they both agree on is that the world will be effectively Christianized before Christ comes back. There's the story of the famous uh, Gerhardus Voss and D.B. Warfield who both taught at Princeton Seminary and their students used to say that they would debate Warfield would say Christ returned to a saved world, whereas Voss would say Christ returned to save the world. 
And that really sums up the differences nicely between postmillennialism and amillennialism. The debate is basically about the nature and character of the millennial age. Structurally, they're pretty much the same. And that's why in my book, A Case for All Millennialism, I, I'm concentrating more on premillennialism because structurally these things are pretty much the same. Um, we both hold out then that the millennial age precedes Christ's coming. And I think it's fair to say that, post, uh, that, that all amillennialists are postmillennial, but not all postmillennialists are amillennial, I think is, is, a, is a fair way to, to put this. Now, amillennialists and postmillennialists agree that when Jesus returns at the end of the age, he's going to do three things. Well, let's get our Bibles out and go through these because I think this is very significant. Three things will happen. First, Jesus is going to raise the dead at his return. So turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and this is a long passage. I won't read it in its entirety, but I think it's important to point out at the end of this passage, um, Paul has described the resurrection of the dead. He's basically made the case that if there is no resurrection from the dead, Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, those who preach the gospel are liars. And if Christ isn't raised, then it's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, which is basically the first century equivalent of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, then what are we doing, is Paul's argument. Then he goes on to talk about the resurrection of the body. Well, what kind of a body do they have? And he speaks of the natural body and the spiritual body. And at the end of this passage, verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Huge point. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. You hear that? Those of you sleeping. <laughs> you won't all sleep. Some of you are going to, not all of you. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He has given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in this passage, we're told that when Christ returns, the dead are raised. And they're raised either perishable, no, they're raised imperishable. And that perishable things cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you're premillennial, you've got to be asking yourself, what happens to the presence of people living on earth in natural bodies after Christ comes back? Just kind of hold that out there for a minute. Think about that. Jesus comes back, sets up His kingdom, and He's ruling over the nations, right? What happens at the resurrection? The dead are all raised. Imperishable. Turn to the next passage that speaks of the resurrection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the famous rapture passage, which was really talking about the resurrection, as Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 15. 
and pick up at verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. So this gives us a chance to talk about anybody who's nodded off, right? This is a metaphor for death. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him, as those who have died in Christ. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, this answers the other question. In 1 Corinthians 15, the question is, what about the dead? Here Paul's talking about the living. What happens to those alive when Christ comes back? They will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down with heaven, or from heaven with a shout, a loud command, the voice of God, the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, we're going to get to dispensationalism down the road here, but as you know, dispensationalists say this is a reference to the rapture. But three times in this passage, we're told of loud things. A trumpet, the voice of God, and a shout, a loud command. Are we going to sleep through this? Is this just a reference to believers being taken off the earth? If it is, then it's what Ken Jones says. It's like a cosmic dog whistle. You know, When the trumpet of God sounds, only the believers hear it. I don't think so. The Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. The language here is a coronation. The king arrives at his city. The people throng out to meet him. And they all come back into the royal city together in a grand processional. That's the picture here. Not a secret rapture. But the angels gathering the elect from the four corners of the earth, catching them up into the heavens, and they return together with the Lord. This is talking about the end of the age, not a secret rapture. It's talking about a resurrection of the dead and the living, all caught up and transformed when Christ comes back. Now, brothers, about dates and times we need not write you, for you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So, Paul goes on at the end of that passage to say, He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. So the second coming then is language of the resurrection. It's language given so we encourage each other with the news that Christ is coming back to raise the dead. Now, the next list of passages, Matthew 25 and Revelation chapter 20, speak of judgment occurring. When Christ comes back. Now, the passage in Matthew 25 is another one you're all very familiar with, the story of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, second coming, right? When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. This is the judgment. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. When do the nations appear before Christ? When He comes back. And what does He do with them? He separates them into two categories, right? Sheep and goats. 
It's called Judgment Day. He'll put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That kingdom, by the way, that flesh and blood cannot inherit. That kingdom. And then at the end, verse 41, he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is Judgment Day. The sheep enter in to the kingdom. That kingdom, by the way, that can't be inherited, you know, flesh and blood can't inherit. And what happens to the goats? They are thrown where? Eternal fire. Third passage we need to look at. The third category. 2 Peter chapter 3. Beginning at verse one, uh, 3, actually. First of all, you must understand in the last day scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, Where is this coming you promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of the world. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's words, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the greatest, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. So when does fire appear? The day of judgment. And what happens on that day? Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That's what Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, right? The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So it seems pretty clear that when Christ returns, He raises the dead, He judges the world, and He makes all things new. I think the Bible is very clear that when Christ comes back, we have the final day of the consummation. We enter the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. That kingdom that can't be inherited by flesh and blood. That kingdom where there are no longer any goats. They've all been cast in the lake of fire. What's left of an earthly millennium where Jesus comes back and sits at His throne in Jerusalem and rules over people in natural bodies? Not much. Those very clear passages destroy the idea that Jesus sets up a kingdom on the earth. Now, as we've seen, premillenarians believe that when Jesus returns, He establishes the kingdom. And it means then that the resurrection, the first resurrection is when Christ comes back. The final, resurre uh, the final resurrection is at the uh, judgment when Christ establishes new heavens and new earth following the millennial age. But... That creates a whole bunch of problems because it means that according to premillennial folk, 
during this period of time, people live on the earth together in resurrected bodies and non-resurrected bodies. When Christ comes back, the dead are raised, right? So if there is an earthly kingdom, you have some people in resurrection bodies. Premillennial people tell us that some people get through the judgment and go into the millennial age in natural bodies. Can we really envision a time of redemptive history where people are raised, living next door to someone who remains mortal? Even worse, as we'll see in a minute, what happens at the end of the millennial age? Just file that away as we go through this now. So, Premillennialists tell us that Jesus rules the earth from Jerusalem during this time. He's ruling over people in resurrection bodies and people in natural bodies. And they tell us then that the millennial age ends in an apostasy after Jesus rules the nations, but before Jesus judges the nations and casts the devil, the beast, and the false prophet in the lake of fire. What does that say about Christ's thousand-year rule over the earth if at the end of Christ's rule on the earth from Jerusalem the nations revolt against Him? Do you really want to say that? And then, at the end of this whole period of time, there's a second fall. People in resurrection bodies, people in natural bodies, fall away, John says, and are destroyed on the day of judgment by fire. The presence of evil in the millennial age is a serious problem for all forms of premillennialism. Not only do you have people living in redeemed and non-redeemed bodies side by side, but at the end of the thousand years, there's a second fall after Christ has ruled for a thousand years. That creates all kinds of problems based on other passages. Now, as you've gathered, the amillennial approach is markedly different. We would argue that the first six verses in Revelation 20 take place in heaven and not on the earth because that's where the thrones are. The passage is talking about people ruling in heaven as opposed to ruling on the earth after Christ returns. The thousand years there are a figurative period of time. Others find that very problematic because that's not taking the Bible literally. But are the numbers in the book of Revelation ever intended to be taken literally or are they symbolic of things? The number seven appears throughout the book of Revelation. What's the number seven mean? Completion. Four appears throughout the book of Revelation. What's four mean? North, south, east, and west. The whole four corners of the globe. Twelve appears in the book of Revelation. Twelve tribes of Israel. Twelve apostles. Numbers are always used symbolically. So in a book where numbers are used symbolically... If we take the thousand years literally, we get a second fall. Or we take the thousand years as a figurative period of time. Which is it going to be? What's the hermeneutical trade-off? If you say the thousand years are a literal thousand years, and you're post-millennial, the millennium hasn't begun yet. If you take the thousand years literally, and you say it's after Christ returns, then it ends with the second fall. It ends with an apostasy after Christ has ruled. Or you say the thousand years are a figurative period of time when every number in the book of Revelation is used symbolically. I think that's a no-brainer. I think that one's a pretty easy call to make. 
The numbers are used symbolically because the alternative is a second fall. Now, we also believe that the first resurrection occurs in this age, not when Christ comes back. Well, how on earth could you say that? Look at John chapter 5. I take John to be the author of the Gospel and the author of the book of Revelation. And I think John answers this question for us very directly in verses 24 and 25 of John chapter 5. When is the first resurrection? Well, John tells us. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth is time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. John tells us the first resurrection occurs when somebody comes to faith in Christ or when a saint dies. There's a big debate about which one, but it clearly occurs when someone crosses from death to life when they believe the Gospel. The first resurrection isn't Christ's coming. The first resurrection is when you are united to Christ and are made alive. And those, by the way, who participate in the first resurrection don't face the second death. That's a very strong uh, point in Revelation chapter 20. Now, Satan is said to be bound throughout the present age. Dispensationalists, historic premillennialists go nuts and say, how can you say Satan's bound when there's so much evil in the world? Well, John answers that. John says that Satan is not taken out of the way entirely, but that Satan is prevented from doing something very specific. He's prevented from deceiving the nations. Now, we know that Scripture says Satan is a liar. He deceives. What is, that, what is the, the weapon we have to keep Satan from deceiving the people? The truth. The Gospel. And so the Reformed have argued that Satan is bound by God from deceiving the nations. He can't organize these worldwide empires against the church, as we see in the book of Daniel, for example. How long did Hitler's thousand-year Reich last? Hitler hated the Jews. He hated Christians. His personal prisoner was a Reformed Christian named Martin Niemöller. How long did the Thousand Year Reich last? Was it like 13 years? Christ prevents Satan from deceiving and organizing the nations until he's released from the abyss at the end of the age. Which is why it would make perfect sense if the millennium were present that at the end of time, Satan is let out of the abyss and there's a great apostasy. It makes perfect sense that there would be a, a, a cataclysmic appearance of evil at the end of the age before Christ came back. Because remember, in Revelation chapter 20, when Christ comes back, what does He do? He throws the beast, He throws the false prophet, and He throws the devil where? Into the lake of fire. makes perfect sense that it happens when Christ comes back. Does it not? So, well... Premillenarians believe that Revelation 20 follows chronologically after Revelation 19, which is probably their most powerful argument. Amillenarians believe that Revelation 20 begins this last and final vision, or at least as part of that last and final vision, and that it's dealing with judgment. We do this based on several factors. First, in Revelation 19, verse 15, we read that the nations are judged when Christ comes back, Right? But then in Revelation 20, verse 3, the nations appear again. So if you're premillennial, all the nations are destroyed when Christ comes back, but in the thousand years, there they are again. 
that's problematic. The word idon in Revelation 20 verse 1 indicates a new vision, and this new vision I think runs all the way to the end of chapter 22. But there's another factor that tells us that the book of Revelation is chapter 20. It doesn't follow chronologically after chapter 19 is recapitulation. I have this chart in my book, so I'll go through it quickly here, but notice the contrast, the parallels rather, between Revelation 12, 7 to 11 and Revelation 20. Both describe a heavenly scene. Both depict an angelic battle against Satan and his host. Although in Revelation 20 it's presupposed. Both talk about Satan being cast down. One says to the earth, the other to the abyss. The angel's evil opponent is called the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the one who's called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole inhabited earth. In Revelation 20, look at the language. The angel's evil opponent is called the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan. He's restrained from deceiving the nations any longer, only to be loosed to deceive the nations at the end. Chapter 12 is talking about that deception at the end. Fifth, the Satan's expression of his great wrath because he knows he has little time. Revelation 20, Satan's release for a short time after his imprisonment. Satan's fall results in the kingdom of Christ and his saints, verse 10 of Revelation 12. And Satan's fall results in the kingdom of Christ and his saints, verse 4 of Revelation 20. And then the last parallel is the saint's kingship is not only based on the fall of Satan and Christ's victory, but on the saint's faithfulness even to death and holding to the word of their testimony. Revelation 12.11 Look at verse 4 of Revelation 20. The saint's kingship is based not only on the fall of Satan, but on their faithfulness even to death, holding to the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. It's pretty clear then that Revelation chapter 20 is recapitulating the same things in Revelation chapter 12. And all that is to say, the book of Revelation is a series of cycles. It's not chronological. And so the argument that Revelation 20 follows chronologically after Revelation 19 uh, really vanishes pretty quickly. Well, since all these points can be established then from very clear texts, this means that when we look at Revelation chapter 20, we already know elsewhere, Scripture teaches, that when Jesus returns, all men and women are judged. This means there can be no people on the earth in natural bodies to repopulate the earth passage I want to read to you that, that often goes overlooked in these studies, Luke 20, verse 34. This one is really tough for a dispensationalist to explain. Luke 20, or any kind of premillenarian to explain. Beginning at verse 34. The Pharisees have tried to ask Jesus the trick question about whose wife she's going to be in the resurrection. And Jesus replied... The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Well, that's too bad for the Mormons because uh, there's going to be no eternal procreation. You can always tell a false religion invented by a man because it has sex in it. And here's a classic case of men figuring out a way for eternal sex. Uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, it also is a description of the contrast between the two ages. And I think this is a very important part of biblical teaching. And we'll get here in a couple of weeks when we go through the two-age model. But notice what Jesus goes on to say. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they're like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of 
the resurrection. So in the age to come, there is no marriage nor giving in marriage. Why? Because we've been raised from the dead. How can there be people on earth in natural bodies? There can't be. Because after Christ comes back, there's no more procreation. That's a huge problem for premillenarians. And so in light of those clear texts, then how can there be people on the earth in natural bodies after Christ comes back? There can't. How can there be people on this halfway renewed earth when Peter depicts the complete renewal of all things? This makes premillennialism completely untenable. When Christ comes back, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Not a halfway improved earth where Jesus reigns from Jerusalem over people in natural bodies. That's impossible according to the clear passages we've read. Now, as we wrap up, then, what are just some of the basic tenets of amillennialism? We're going to spend weeks um, fleshing these points out, so I'm going to go through them very, very quickly and kind of wet your whistle for what uh, is coming ahead. First, amillennarians, growing out of their covenant theology, believe that the promises made to national Israel, to David and Abraham in the Old Testament, are fulfilled by Christ and realized in the church during this present age. We do not believe that the church replaces Israel. We believe that there's one people of God on the earth called the church in the old, called Israel in the Old Testament, called the church in the New. It dwindles down to a real few number in the days of Elijah. It's pretty thin in the days of Jesus. It got down to eight during the days of Noah. But once Christ comes back, all of a sudden it's like a wide mouth of a triangle. It's not as though God replaces Israel with a church. It's that God adds a gazillion Gentiles to the elect. This is expansion theology, not replacement theology. And I wish the dispensationalists would actually read our stuff and see the way we're arguing. We might be wrong, but at least quit calling us replacement theologians because nobody teaches that. I keep hearing this and it's like, well, I don't know anybody that actually holds to that position. Refute something we believe. Now, this also means that the New Testament looks back on the Old Testament from the lens of Christ. I am unapologetic about this. I'm a Christian. I'm not a Jew. I think Jesus tells me what the Old Testament means. I don't think Daniel tells me what Revelation means. I think Revelation tells me what Daniel... Daniel was told to roll up that scroll. What's John do? He opens the scroll. So to argue that Israel means Israel in the Old Testament, therefore it has to mean Israel in the New Testament, that's just... Tell me what Jesus says about the passages. When Jesus is with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he opens up the scripture to them and he explains from Genesis to the final book of Malachi how all of that is about him. And so as a Christian, I read the Old Testament through the lens that Jesus taught me and it's Jesus who tells me that he is the true Israel. And that when he comes, Israel has arrived. And I don't know why dispensationalists just stumble and fall all over that. And they do. Now, this means that the millennium is a present reality. It's not a future hope. It runs the entire period of time between the two advents of Christ. The thousand years are another way of speaking of the, the inner advental age, the presence of the kingdom of God. And remember in Revelation chapter 20, in this particular vision, John is comforting those Christians who were facing persecution from Rome. And in two of those churches, Smyrna and Pergamon, people were being put to death. We know that in the church of Pergamon, a certain Antipas had been killed for his faith in Christ. 
And so when Antipas gets snuffed out by a Roman soldier, we learn in Revelation 20 that he came to life and is reigning with Christ. The devil loses by winning. He thinks he's winning. He's actually losing ground. The saints he kills are have been raised and ruling with Christ. That's the point of Revelation chapter 20. It's not talking at all about Jesus sitting in Jerusalem in a rebuilt temple ruling over the nations. It's got nothing to do with that. This means that Satan is bound by the coming of the kingdom of God via the preaching of the gospel. The gospel announces Christ's victory over Satan, the cross and the resurrection. Satan isn't free to deceive the nations because Christ is currently reigning in heaven. Christ is not reigning to establish his kingdom. What is Jesus doing right now? Dispensations talk about kind of a mediatorial kingdom that's temporary until... What is Jesus doing right now? He's looking at his watch, waiting to come back so he can rule. No, he's ruling and reigning right now over all the nations, directing all things toward the end to which he's appointed. And Satan cannot deceive the nations because Christ is reigning in heaven and the gospel is being preached to the ends of the earth. But at the end, things are going to be different. We know that martyrs come out of this period. We know that uh, people suffer and die in the millennial kingdom. I'll never forget the day when I was, I was starting to be convicted about all millennialism. And when I ran a bookstore, a Lutheran minister came in and read to me Revelation chapter 20 and said, where are lions lying down with lambs and children playing with snakes in this passage? If you look at Revelation 20, people are dying. People are being martyred because they refuse to worship the beast or his image. That passage is not talking about peace on the earth. It's talking about martyrdom. It's talking about the present, not the future. Martyrs come out of that period. Now, in most forms of amillennialism, immediately before the return of Christ and after the gospel has been preached to the nations and all Israel is converted, Satan is unbound. That results in this great apostasy in a time of unprecedented evil when the series of antichrists who have been present throughout this entire age culminate in a final end times antichrist, which, as I argue, is kind of a nefarious state-sponsored heresy. And we can talk more about that when we get there. And at the end of the millennial age, Satan's released and Christ returns. And when Christ comes back in the middle of that final eschatological crisis, he judges the world, he raises the dead, and he makes all things new. That is why the second coming is the blessed hope. It is the end of the age. It is the day of judgment. It is the day of resurrection. It is the day of a new heaven and a new earth. That's why John tells us, Amen, come Lord Jesus. That's why Paul says, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's why Paul calls it the blessed hope. That's why Jesus says, you'll see me come as you saw me depart. And that's why Jesus says at the end, there'll be signs in the skies. And that's why John tells us that on the last day, the heavens will roll up like a scroll and all the great and mighty will run for the caves because they don't want to behold the glory of the Lamb. It is the day of judgment. It is glorious news for a Christian. It is the worst possible news for a non-Christian. And so, let's go to the... can't have a, a lecture on prophecy did not have a chart. Uh, this is on my blog. You can find it. Mark Vanderhol graciously uh, made these. He's got some great charts on all the different eschatological views. But notice how simple it is. First advent, Christ's death and resurrection, the binding of Satan, the millennium, this present age. Christ is presently reigning. 
His spiritual kingdom is triumphing even though evil tries to oppose it and does and yet can't succeed. The promises made in the Old Testament to Abraham and Israel and David are fulfilled by Christ who is the true Israel in the New Testament. Satan is then released before the end of the age. There's a final outbreak of evil, uh, the appearance of a persecuting beast, an antichrist figure, if you will. And in the middle of that, Christ comes back for the day of judgment, the resurrection, and to establish the new heavens and the new earth. And so it really is a simple biblical position. It has fewer problems and it doesn't stumble all over itself trying to explain how Christ can come back and have people living on the earth in natural bodies next to people who've been raised from the dead. And it doesn't stumble over the problem of evil. It anticipates great evil to be destroyed by Christ on the day of His coming. And so if you want to know in a simple way uh, what all millennial Christians believe, we long for the blessed hope. We long for that day when Christ returns. And we of all people should be crying out, Maranatha, Lord, come. Any questions? And I'll ask you to keep them on topic tonight because we're going to, as I say, expand and, and flesh out some more of these details as we go along. Okay, I've read Men of Sin, but I haven't quite got through a case for all millennialism okay. yet. Uh, you mentioned the cyclical nature of, of Revelation in A Man of Sin, but uh, you didn't quite go into depth on it. Uh, at least, from, I, this is the first time I've understood it. Could okay. you ever heard of it? So could you go yeah, into a little bit more Yeah, there's some great uh, bibliography I can give you here. Um, you can get a book free on the Internet from Vern Poitras called The Returning King, which is his uh, popular beginner's commentary in the book of Revelation. I would really encourage you to find that and download it. I think I have it on my blog. Uh, Vern Poitras, professor of New Testament at Westminster, Philadelphia. It's a great little, just kind of a, a big picture commentary in the book of Revelation. I would also encourage you to get Dennis Johnson, who is a professor of Westminster Seminary, California. His book called The Triumph of the Lamb, that is the best introductory commentary in Revelation in print, period. It's just outstanding. The technical arguments can best be found in Greg Beale's commentary, uh, the New International Commentary in the Greek New Testament, um, on the book of Revelation. As you know, Dr. Beale was here for our conference last year, and uh, Beale's very comprehensive. But you'll find that argument for this cyclical... Dennis Johnson uses an, an illustration that's very, very helpful. He speaks of Revelation as a series of visions, each told from a different camera angle. Imagine watching an NFL football game and on the field you see one perspective from where you're sitting, but imagine the guy out in the, the, the uh, producer out in the truck. There are how many cameras watching that game? There's a camera from above. There's a camera at the 50-yard line. There's an end zone view and there are isolation cameras on the wide receiver, the line, all this. So the book of Revelation, each of these visions looking at the same thing from a different camera angle. And so by the time you've gone through all the cycles of the book of Revelation, you've seen this interadvenal period from a bunch of different perspectives. And I think that's how you have to look at the book of Revelation. That's a, that's a very, very helpful, helpful way to understand the book. You don't read Revelation as historical narrative. It's apocalyptic. It uses images and symbols drawn from the Old Testament to explain the struggle that God's people are having on earth against the dragon. 
And it's all set against the backdrop of the Roman Empire and Nero. And what happens in the first century with Christians facing Rome and Nero is a picture to Christians in all the ages of these God-hating beasts that continually arise and oppose God's people only to be smacked down again. So, someone said, well, give me a picture of the mark of the beast. We had a great picture here in this very building when Ken Sample showed one of those old World at War episodes. Nazi Germany, after Kristallnacht, before World War II actually started, German school children marching in lockstep into this big auditorium with a Christmas tree, gigantic Christmas tree, decorated beautifully. At the top of the Christmas tree is a swastika. And what are the children singing? In their perfect little pitched voices. Hitler is our Savior. Hitler is our Lord. That's what we're talking about. Come up to the mic and ask away. Yeah. Um, the the biggest issue that I see with what you're presenting tonight is the issue that that the millennium brings with it that Satan cannot deceive the nations. Uh, what does that mean? Because it goes against the thrust of the rest of the New Testament. I'll just read one passage um, in Second Corinthians four. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. You, you missed the good one. He's like a roaring lion looking for someone to okay. devour. Well, okay. I'm just... Yeah. So, it, it, this is the most difficult problem with amillennialism. And, and if you look at it, I think, carefully, you realize it's not a problem at all. It's exactly what you'd expect. If you go back to the contrast between Revelation 20 and Revelation chapter 12. Um, Let me back that slide up if I can here. In those two passages, and also in Revelation chapter 13, whoops, you end up with Satan being cast down from heaven, Revelation chapter 12. He's on the earth like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour, parallels Revelation chapter 20. When we say Satan is bound, John tells us what that means. John says he can't deceive the nations anymore. And William Henderson uses, I think, an illustration that that is very helpful. If you take a vicious animal and that animal is mortally wounded, is it more dangerous when it's well-fed or when it's mortally wounded? It's obviously more dangerous when it's mortally wounded and it's bound and it's enraged. So Henderson says, look, if you take a vicious animal and put it on a chain, that animal can't do all the things in anger that it wishes to do. But if you get within the radius of the chain, you're going, to get, you're going to get mauled. Luther put it this way. He said, the devil's God's devil. The devil can only do what God permits him to do. And so I take Revelation 20 to mean that during the course of this age, as the gospel is preached, Satan cannot oppose the gospel in an organized way as you found in the days before the coming of Christ. And so what happens is the gospel ministry, word and sacrament, continues to thwart and frustrate Satan's purposes until the time of the end when God in his providence allows Satan to flourish again. It doesn't mean that Satan's taken out of the way. As a matter of fact, Revelation says Satan is even more dangerous once he's bound than he is before because he knows his time is short. He's enraged. So we can talk more about that as we go along. Guy to Brazil. 
Not a question, but just a comment on that, just to add to what you just said. Uh, the, uh, the word, the same writer of, of Revelation, as we take to be John, the apostle writing both Revelation and the Gospel of John, uh, the same writer who writes about binding Satan in Revelation uses the same Greek word in his Gospel to describe Satan, uh, the strong man being bound. And so the concept is that Jesus comes to, brought, to bind the strong man and then uh, to uh, enter his house and, uh, and take the captives, make the captives free, which is the same New Testament concept of the gates, gates of hell not prevailing against the church. So when John asserts in Revelation that the nations, uh, that the, Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations. It does not, does not mean that there's not going to be unbelievers in nations. It does not even mean that there are not going to be nations that are mostly unbelieving nations, such as, uh, uh, I don't know, Saudi Arabia. It means that in every Brazil. single nation of the world... Huh? Brazil. Or Brazil. <laughs> uh, it means that in every single nation of the world there's going to be a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Satan is bound in the sense that he cannot ultimately... Uh, stop uh, the gospel from right. from going forth, because the same Paul who speaks to the church in Corinth that the uh, Satan has blinded the minds of, of the unbelievers. He's, ta- he's talking about those who had been blinded by Satan and now are imperfectly as they were the church in Corinth. Yeah. And that's the whole concept of Satan not being able to ultimately, with his power, because he has power to blind the minds of every single human being. But Christ has bound them in a sense that the gospel will go forward. And the truth gives freedom. Yeah. And it's the same word. It's the same writer using the same concept. Binding the strong man and then pilfering his house and the Satan being bound. He's using the same concept because it's part of his vocabulary. Not just uh, uh, you know, lex- in the lexicon sense, of, but, but he, the, the way he thinks. That's, that's the Apostle John writing. Okay. So just to add to that. One more question. I think we have time for one more. I appreciate you uh, putting this out because uh, looking at this from a different perspective for a lot of years, this is um, eye-opening to say the least. And so I got your book, uh, Case for Homolinism, as you know, and I finished it last night at four in the morning, so then went to work. But did you get the second blessing? <laughs> you should get you it. Did, we did promise I get it, and it happened about yeah. you know four fourteen or something. But okay. you know. Um, but you went to sleep right afterwards. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. That was the blessing. It says, not all of us will sleep, but I did, I guess. I, whatever. Moving on. Um, trusting that the specific uh, things you, you'll cover in the future and there'll be time to ask that. I was looking at it from what would somebody who might hear this on, um, you know, the Internet or on the tapes or whatever think to ask, because I'd ask something different, but then I thought um, this should be asked, and, and you didn't pay me to say this. So, what would, what is the difference? Because when it started, it said there was a, a joke before the tape started, like no pan-millennial jokes, which you finish, you know, your book with, and I've heard before, and, and that's good. But the people still are they're going to say, yeah, but why should I really care? You know, why, what difference does this make? And so can you tell me how, what would the difference between 
you showed in your introduction that post-millennialism and amillennialism are pretty close together, except for will the nations be Christianized as a pessimistic, optimistic. You've covered that in the book. And, and premillennialism, which is totally different. How are those two people going to look at Christ's um, second coming differently based on the hermeneutic and their understanding of the eschatology that you're talking about? Great question. I can just answer that just real briefly. If you're post-millennial, you're going to tend to view this millennial period as a golden age. Therefore, you're going to be focused on the transformation of culture. And you're going to tend to see the church's mission is to transform culture so that where the gospel goes, there'll be economic and political and cultural progress and that the vast majority of people become Christians. If you're a dispensationalist, you're going to be very pessimistic about the course of world history and you're going to see things center around the nation of Israel. And you're going to have a rather pessimistic view of the transformation of culture. If you're amillennial, you're going to have kind of a two kingdoms. You're going to head in the direction of two kingdoms, city of God, city of man kind of thing. And you're going to live your earthly citizenship and live your heavenly citizenship, realizing that the earth is never going to be Christianized in terms of culture, but that, like a mustard seed, the gospel is going to spread throughout the entire ends of the earth and that before Christ comes back, the gospel has to go forward to the ends of the earth. So those are just a couple of practical ways in which this is important. And the most important thing to remember is these two, amillennialism and postmillennialism, have pretty much the same hermeneutic. The difference of opinion is the nature of the millennial age. The dispensational hermeneutic, and I'm not speaking here of historical premillennialism. I think George Ladd's one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars ever to live. But I also think historic premillennialism has the problem after Christ comes back, which is pretty minor. Dispensationalism, on the other hand, creates a number of problems in the way in which we view the New Testament. Classic example, kingdom of God is the kingdom of God present now. As a reformed minister, I believe the kingdom of God is manifest every time the gospel is preached, every time the sacraments are administered. Yet if you're a dispensationalist, your argument is that no, the kingdom isn't realized yet because it's postponed until the millennial kingdom. That's a huge impact. My doctrine of sanctification is the application of Christ's kingship over me subduing my sinfulness. But if Jesus' kingship isn't set up to the millennium, you kind of lose sight of the importance of Christ's kingly work in the present. That's all pushed off ahead. So dispensationalists, by, by pushing things off to the future, miss out on all kinds of very important present benefits for Christians. So, great question. Um, why don't we close with a, a very simple, yet I think very profound prayer. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Next time we will uh, take up the question of interpreting prophecy and we'll talk about some of those presuppositions in our basic hermeneutic and we'll do the same on the 29th. So uh, we'll get down in the nuts and bolts here as we uh, head forward. So.